Hello, I'm Catherine Carr, producer of Talking Politics. In today's episode of History of Ideas, which is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, David discusses the origins of utilitarianism in the thought of Jeremy Bentham, the man who came up with the catchphrase, the greatest happiness of the greatest number. Bentham has been mocked as a cold, calculating, mechanical philosopher. Listen on to discover how he was so much more than that. There's a rule or convention that's come to be adopted, particularly in contemporary American political commentary, which is known as the Goldwater Rule. And it says that we should resist the temptation to try and diagnose the psychological condition of politicians, either as actual professional psychologists or as armchair psychologists, if we haven't treated them. It's too easy to say of this or that person that they suffer from narcissistic personality disorder or whatever it is started with Barry Goldwater. It's continued to this day. A lot of people found it very hard to abide by it during the presidency of Donald Trump, but that's the rule. There isn't an equivalent to the Goldwater rule for political philosophers. Maybe there should be, but there isn't. So there is often a temptation that is succumbed to by people who read these philosophers or read about them to diagnose a condition, particularly to speculate about whether they were autistic, on the autistic spectrum. So I have read articles that say that Thomas Hobbes was autistic. I've read articles about Kant, Immanuel Kant and autism, Wittgenstein and his autism. But perhaps the distinctive case, the standout case, is the one that's made about the philosopher I'm talking about today, Jeremy Bentham. In 2006, an article by two psychologists, Lucas and Sheeran, which is about Bentham, genius, creativity, and Asperger's syndrome, makes the case that from what we know now and from what we know about Bentham, it seems very likely that he did indeed have Asperger's syndrome. What's the evidence? Well, Bentham was an obsessive systematizer. He loved and looked for patterns everywhere. He also was someone who was obsessed about language and trying to pin it down. He invented quite a few new words because he wanted language to be clear. It always frustrated him. It seemed somehow evasive. And he really, really wanted to know not just what he was talking about, but what other people were talking about too. And he wrote over the course of his long life, millions and millions of words. He was remarkably prolix. The Bentham Project, which tries to now publish all of those words, because most of them were not published in Bentham's lifetime, has been a generations-long endeavour at University College London. The volume is overwhelming, but it was part of the obsession with system, with trying to nail it all down. And Bentham spent his life thinking that it was possible to make it clearer. He was also, throughout his life, afraid of ghosts. He was preoccupied with masks. One of the features of Asperger's syndrome is a difficulty in reading conventional signs, particularly nonverbal signals, so that the human face itself can perhaps sometimes seem to be a mask. And Bentham always wanted to know what lay behind the mask, partly, perhaps, because he couldn't read it. 
He didn't understand it. He was eccentric, no question. He gave names to household objects. He called his teapot Dicky. The account that Lucas and Sheeran give is pretty sympathetic, and it's quite convincing, but who am I to say? But it does feed into the caricature of Bentham. The criticism of Bentham is that he's the philosopher who went too far. He didn't know when to stop, that the endless, lifelong outpouring of words and of systems and of lists, endlessly breaking things down, numerating them, counting them, recounting them, trying to recalibrate them. The philosopher who didn't know where to stop, didn't know when to stop, and so missed too much about the human experience, missed too much that, for want of a better word, it's a pretty ugly word, more neurotypical people would understand, people who could read human expressions and human faces, people who could understand human emotions, people who knew why the conventions were there. And that then feeds into the two flagship examples of what's thought to be wrong with Bentham's philosophy, with his utilitarianism, and I'll say in a minute what that is. But the first is one of Bentham's great schemes in his life, and perhaps it's the thing for which he is now best known, the panopticon scheme. Bentham, among the many, many other things he did, and he did an amazing amount, he designed all sorts of things, including constitutions for states, but he designed a prison. It was meant to be a kind of rational prison, and the panopticon was based on the principle that a well-ordered prison would be one in which the governor or the person who ran the prison in a central spot in that prison could observe the prisoners, but the prisoners could not see who they were being observed by. And because they couldn't see and couldn't know when they were being watched, they would behave better. And that was a kind of rational scheme. It was well calibrated and well organized to maximize good behavior at minimum cost. And for many people, it seems like the kind of parody of enlightenment thinking, the inhuman version of efficiency that misses what really matters, which is what it would feel like to be watched without knowing that you're being watched. So the panopticon is exhibit one against Bentham. Exhibit two is utilitarianism itself, but really his catchphrase, and Bentham did have a catchphrase, the greatest happiness of the greatest number. His version of utilitarianism said that that was the underlying both principle and standard against which all human endeavors really should be judged. Do they add to the sum of human happiness? In some respects, an unobjectionable argument. We're all sort of in favor of happiness, aren't we? But for many people also a grossly reductive argument because it is all about number. It is about the sum. It's another of Bentham's adding up schemes. And his critics have often said that therefore it prioritizes quantity over quality. It doesn't discriminate between the types or kinds of happiness or pleasure, because this is also for Bentham an argument straightforwardly about translating happiness into pleasure and unhappiness into pain. After all, what is it that we want? Pleasure. What is it that we want to avoid? Pain. This argument, and I'm not going to do it here, has some connection with Hobbes. So Bentham is criticised as the person who famously thought that pushpin and poetry were just as good as each other. You take your happiness where you find it. There aren't the higher pleasures and the lower pleasures. There's just pleasure. And then he's caricatured as the calculating machine. That's how his Victorian critics saw him. The man who just added up. He was like a human abacus, unfeeling, unthinking, 
unrecognizing of the variety of human life, the complexity of human life, the inadvertence of human life, the man who was so busy with his systems that he missed what it meant to be alive. That's the criticism of Bentham, and it is wrong. And it isn't just a caricature, it is grossly unfair. Bentham is so much more than that, and he is so much more interesting than that. Why is it so unfair? Well, apart from the fact that it seems to me to be prejudiced against the type of person that Bentham was. If you think about that diagnosis, I think the key to it is masks. So yes, Bentham probably was someone who found it hard to read certain kinds of human and social conventional forms of nonverbal communication. But the result of that was that he wanted to know what lay behind the masks. So if he didn't understand the way that people behaved, he wanted to ask Rousseau's question. So his answer is very different from Rousseau's. But the question, the one that I started with last time, why? So he would say, if I don't understand it, tell me why you do it like this. Why is this the convention? Why is that how we communicate? Why are we the people that we are? There was a kind of bracing naivety about Bentham, which maybe came from his psychological condition, but he wanted to know what lay behind the mask. And therefore, he wanted to know whether the masks were worth it. And that is, in a way, Rousseau's question. And it was for Bentham a lifelong project, and he pushed that question all the time. Explain it to me. Justify it to me. Okay, sure, there are things that I don't know. You think you know them? Then explain it to me in language I can understand. Why are we doing it like this? Someone who does have Asperger's syndrome and talks about it openly is Greta Thunberg. And Greta Thunberg says that the great advantage for her of her condition is precisely that, that it encourages her to ask the why question, where other people just accept, this is how we do it, this is the way things are, these are the limits. No, we can't do that. Why? Tell me why. If there is a good reason, fine, I'll accept it. But justify it to me and justify it to me in a way I can understand. So don't do it by nods and winks. Don't do it by your secret signs and conventions. Spell it out. Spell it out in language I can understand. It's a really, really good question. And Bentham did ask it all his life. He lived from 1748 to 1832. So he was born a couple of years before Rousseau published his first discourse. And he died the year of the great first reform act, the beginnings of the democratization of the British state, something for which he was not responsible, but at least in small part, the inspiration. He believed in progress, unlike Rousseau. He certainly believed in a different kind of progress. And he saw some of it in his life, but not much, to be honest. Actually, I think he would think depressingly little, which is why he kept asking the question, why is it like this? More why than how, less interested in how we got here, but why justify it to me? And for Bentham, the great utility of utilitarianism, its great usefulness, was not just because it allowed him to systematize and come up with endless lists and schemes and numbers. It was because it allowed him to pose the question. He was able to say to people, 
Well, your justification for this could be that it adds to the sum of human happiness, in which case, great, we can discuss it, we can debate it. You may be right, you may be wrong. Let's add it up and see if that's your justification. You can't object to me getting out my calculating machine, as it were. But if you have some other justification, if this is not about human happiness, if there is some other reason why we do it this way, I'm all ears, tell me. But you have to remember that it has to be different from it's good for everyone, because that's just a utilitarian argument. So either you are going to accept the terms of my argument, and then we can talk, or you're not, in which case, I really want to hear it. I really want to know what is more important than human happiness. One way to think about Benthamite utilitarianism, I've always felt, is that it's a kind of acid. So it's not some dry, arcane numbering system. It is designed to burn through the crap. And Bentham had that image in mind too, cleaning out the Aegean stables, all the accumulated detritus and nonsense of the centuries that build up inevitably around human institutions and human societies and roles and performances, all the elaborate structures of modern life. And utilitarianism burns through it because it asks the question that it says must be answered in the language of human happiness or has to have a better answer than that. And the implication is you're really going to find it hard to come up with a better answer than that. So if you ask the utilitarian question of anything, is this adding to the sum of human happiness? And you push it and you press it, as Bentham did. He was pretty relentless and remorseless. If you press it, eventually it will cut through. And what matters is what's left. Once the acid has burned away the nonsense, what's left is what counts. And Bentham didn't think that what would be left would just be pleasure or what would be left, and this is another caricature of utilitarianism, would just be human selfishness. When you burn away some of the traditional institutions, you're just left with human beings seeking their own pleasures. Life was rich and complicated and people found happiness and pleasure. Bentham knew in all sorts of extraordinary and unusual ways and no one should prejudge. But at least what was left wouldn't be garbage. At least what was left would have to make a certain kind of sense. So one thing for Bentham, utilitarianism was designed to do was not just to free us from pain, and it may be that we can't be free from pain. There will be pain in all human lives, there certainly was in Bentham's, but it might just free us from nonsense. And as Bentham, I think, would say, seriously, tell me the harm in that. The first book that he published, that he published it anonymously, while well, a pretty young man in 1776 was what's come to be known as a fragment on government, in which he makes this kind of argument, the utilitarianism argument, the greatest happiness of the greatest number acid test in relation to the law, the law of England, particularly a very prominent justifier, legal theorist of the established system, a man called William Blackstone. It's an argument against him, but more broadly, it's an argument against the crap. It's there that Bentham says we need to clean these stables out. And he wants to apply the acid test to all the things that surround the way that the law works and to see what survives and what gets burned through because he was absolutely convinced that the law was surrounded by nonsense. So some of the nonsense were all the legal fictions that lawyers insist are necessary, things that they admit aren't true and have no bearing on reality but are somehow required because otherwise the law won't really work. We have to pretend things exist that don't so that we can get the results that we want. Why? 
Bentham wanted to know. Why couldn't we describe things as they are? If we pretend, how do we know we're not kidding ourselves? It included the language of the law. So Bentham hated all of the mumbo jumbo, all of the jargon. He hated the fact that the law was often not in English, in Latin. He basically hated the fact that anyone in 18th century England who came before the law had a fairly good chance of not being able to understand what was being said to him or her, because it was a language to itself. Part of the reason that Bentham wanted to create his own language, and sometimes it is true that Bentham almost seems like he's talking a private language. He's invented so many new terms. And so he can be accused of replacing one set of jargon with another. But the endeavour, at least, was to create a language that could be understood because it was grounded in reality. Get rid of the jargon, get rid of the fictions, get rid of the arguments that we do it like this because it is naturally sanctioned. Get rid of all that nonsense about natural rights that Bentham was famously to go on and describe as nonsense upon stilts. There's nonsense and then there's natural rights. Nonsense above the nonsense. Bentham hated all that talk that we do it like this because it's natural. Or we do it like this because we've always done it like this. It's traditional. Why? Bentham wanted to know why. And he thought that there are really only three possibilities here when you came across someone seemingly talking nonsense, say a lawyer or a judge or a politician or a legal philosopher. One possibility is that it's not nonsense, that it actually does make sense, in which case Bentham really wants to hear the argument for it. And he wants to know whether the argument is an argument against utilitarianism or actually is an argument in the language of utility. That is, the argument is the reason we do this, the reason we talk in Latin, the reason we talk about natural rights, the reason we talk about legal fictions is because it makes more people better off. It adds to the sum of human well-being. At which point Bentham would say, okay, fine, now at least we have our terms. And now I want to try and show you that that may not be the best way of adding it up. But at least there is the grounds then for an argument. The second possibility is that the lawyers know that it's nonsense. And not only do they not care, they value it not because of the sum of human happiness to which it contributes, but because of the personal benefit they get from it. It is a mask for them to hide behind including to hide behind what may be immoral practices, basically stealing. It's for their own preferment. It's for their own enrichment. It's for padding their own nests. And Bentham was certainly prone to believing that too. He had a paranoid streak, no question, I think. He was sometimes a little bit like what we might now call a conspiracy theorist, and he certainly wondered at various points whether the legal system wasn't a kind of conspiracy, but he's not alone in that. Later in the 19th century, there was to be a famous definition of the professions, including the legal profession. They are all conspiracies against the public. And Bentham certainly suspected that a lot of what was going on with the law was just that, hiding behind the mask for benefit. But there was another possibility too, which is the lawyers didn't know they were talking nonsense and would like to know that actually they weren't deliberately setting out to deceive people but they were trapped in traditions or languages or conventions that they just took for granted. They accepted it. It was part of the training. It was part of the profession. It was how you get ahead. It wasn't nefarious. It wasn't a conspiracy. It was just a kind of obliviousness. Three possibilities. One, you can have an argument 
because utilitarianism provides the grounds for the argument. Two, these people are crooks, in which case utilitarianism will expose them. Three, these people are fools, in which case utilitarianism will educate them. Argue with them, expose them, educate them. Win, win, win. In An Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation, which was written in 1780 and is probably the definitive early statement of Bentham's broader utilitarian approach. It's the attempt to go beyond just trying to expose or take down or rectify what's wrong with the law, to argue how and why it would be possible to ground not just a legal system, but specifically in this case, a penal system, punishment and sanction on utilitarian principles. And it is unquestionably a book full of lists and systems numbered and accounted for, breaking things down, coming up with the terms that allow us to know what we're doing. It sometimes is a little like the caricature of Bentham and utilitarianism, but it is also doing the same thing as a fragment on government, but just on the grander scale, which is asking the question, if you're not going to do it like this, if you're not going to accept that we are going to calculate whether this has left people better off or not, please tell me on what basis you are doing it. Please give me your justifications. And in that book, Bentham goes through some of the various justifications that are offered by people who want to say it is not about the sum of human happiness. And he demolishes them because the great utility of utilitarianism is that it burns through the crap. So one of the arguments that Bentham considers there against trying to evaluate social systems and conventions and institutions on the grounds of does it give people pleasure, does it add to the sum of human happiness and well-being, is asceticism, which is the philosophy that is explicitly against pleasure, that says there is something wrong with pleasure, that it is dangerous. This is primarily, almost exclusively, a religious philosophy. And as Bentham always says, and he does take these things seriously, you know, there is a possibility that this philosophy is itself a form of utilitarianism, that people are against pleasure because they think deep down that the pursuit of pleasure leads to pain and that there's another way to pleasure. But he also accepts that some ascetics simply are against it. They think it's wrong. And they don't think it's wrong on some calculus. They think it's wrong because it's wrong. And this is not, again a kind of caricature of Bentham's argument that says in a sort of cynical way, well, everyone, even the people who think it's wrong, are just doing it for their own pleasure. So there is a version of this, a kind of crude version of utilitarianism that says all human beings are motivated to seek pleasure and to avoid pain. So if you find a human being who is sitting on the top of a pillar, flagellating him or herself, don't think that that person is somehow valuing suffering. That person enjoys suffering because we all do ultimately what we want. Deep down, we're selfish. There is a crude version of utilitarianism that comes out like that, but I don't think that's Bentham's. Bentham takes seriously that you know saints might actually be motivated by saintliness. They're not just doing it because they're as selfish as the rest of us. But he wants to know, if that's what you think, if you think that pleasure is wrong, what would a social system be built on that? Are there actually ascetic philosophers who can construct ascetic political philosophies. And he says, no, there never has been, and by implication, there never will be, 
because there are no systems of government or rule or law that seek to harm people. Which is ironic, because there are many systems of government and rule and law that do harm people. Bentham was super aware of that. Most forms of politics, he thought, were really damaging. And there were many terrible systems of government. But they were not self-described as setting out to cause harm. As he says, show me the system of government where the rulers say, we are trying to encourage highwaymen and robbery and larceny because we love pain. We think it's good. Not we get pleasure from it, we just think it's good. He says there aren't any of those systems. Even the worst systems try to justify themselves by saying they'll make people better off. Because in the end, even the ascetics, if they scale it up, can't justify it as a social system. And if you can't justify it as a social system, it's your own business if you want to lead a self-flagellating life. But you can't inflict it on others. There's another set of arguments that Bentham considers. And this is what he calls the arguments against utilitarianism that make the case that what matters is sympathy and antipathy. That is, there are certain things that are right or wrong, not because of what they add to the sum of human happiness, but because of the ways in which we are either attracted to or repelled by them. Some things are repellent to us, not on a utilitarian calculus, but because they are repellent, they are wrong. And a particular version of that argument that Bentham heard and hated is that they're wrong because they're unnatural. And to say they're unnatural is enough. We don't need to then say, well, what we mean by unnatural is actually they detract from the sum of human happiness. We just say, this is not who we are, to use that awful phrase. These are unnatural practices. And for that reason, and for that reason alone, they must be stopped. So what does Bentham say about that? Well, he says, really, only two things could possibly be true there. If the real argument is that this is wrong because it's repellent, then that's prejudice, because the speaker may well be repelled by it. But the speaker is saying that that personal repulsion is sufficient to turn it into a social or political system. And that, for Bentham, is the definition of prejudice. How I feel about this is going to have to be how you all live. So that's one possibility, and Bentham thinks it's completely unsustainable. The other possibility is when people say something is unnatural, though they deny it, what they really mean is it is not good for people because it does not add to their well-being, that at root it is a utilitarian argument masked or clouded in the language of nature. And Bentham is making a philosophical point, but this isn't a dry argument. This isn't an ivory tower argument. What sort of things are described as unnatural practices? Certainly then, still, sometimes now, sex, sexuality, including homosexuality. In the 18th century, homosexuality was not simply considered to be unnatural. It was a capital offence, what was sometimes called the Sodomy Act or the Buggery Act, meant you could be hanged for homosexual acts. And this wasn't some dead-letter law. It happened It happened during Bentham's lifetime. It happened beyond Bentham's lifetime. The last two men to be hanged in England in public for sodomy happened in 1835, three years after Bentham died. A man called James Pratt and another man called John Smith were seen, according to the landlord of an inn, and it was just his word, performing these unnatural acts. And they were hanged for it, and they were hanged for it 
notwithstanding the pleas for clemency from both their wives. And for Bentham, this is completely grotesque. If you think about what he says about arguments based on what is natural and unnatural, there are only two possibilities here. Either these men have been hanged because of prejudice, and that is unconscionable, or they've been hanged because there is a belief that these acts detract from the sum of human happiness, that deep down the arguments about nature are utilitarian arguments, in which case it is demonstrably wrong. So Bentham believed that sex was a source of pleasure, and consensual sex was one of the main sources of pleasure, and consensual sexual acts between two men. It's not simply that this wasn't anyone else's business. This was almost certainly, Bentham believed, adding to the sum of human pleasure. To hang them for it? It's either unconscionable or it is completely and utterly absurd. In 18th century England, many things were capital offences. Small acts of theft, of larceny, anything I think more than 12 pence came under capital crimes. And though not many were hanged for those kinds of offences, some were and many others were transported. And in An Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation, Bentham does spend a lot of time systematising and itemising and using long words to describe what a utilitarian code of crime and punishment would look like. It can be quite hard to read sometimes, but it really mattered for Bentham because of what he was talking about. So he uses of punishment and the justification for punishment, words like propinquity, efficaciousness, sensibility, proportionality. It looks dry, but it just means, does this crime really merit this punishment? Will this punishment leave people in the round better off? Does it fit the crime if we think about the consequences of the pain that we're inflicting? Does the pain balance against our desire to add to the sum of human happiness? Is it proportionate? Is hanging a man for a consensual sexual act, proportionate? It can't be. There is no conceivable justification for that. But Bentham is also interested in politics as well. So he has arguments, again, less along the lines of there is something grotesque going on here, and more along the lines of there is something unnecessarily oblique and foolish going on here. So one of the uses of utilitarianism is to get people to think about whether they have asked the right questions. So another version of the it's unnatural argument, a less grotesque version of it, relates to people paying tax. No one likes paying tax. It causes pain. I mean, someone who takes pleasure in paying tax is rare. Bentham's aware of that. And Bentham's aware of all the ways in which people can suffer. And he's also aware that people often say they don't want to pay tax and they try and come up with arguments that say why. And one argument might be, well, I don't want to pay tax because this is a question or a principle of natural justice. There is a right here. Maybe there is the sanctity of private property. I have some kind of natural or God-given right to this thing. You can't take it from me. And Bentham just wants people to ask themselves the question, are they asking the right question? So what if, for instance, he says, we don't like paying this tax, but the reason that we have to pay this tax is because an earlier tax that was instituted was avoided by the people who ought to pay it. And so the tax has kind of passed down the system and it's arrived at us. And then we get on our high horse and start talking about the sanctity of private property. But we wouldn't do that 
if we knew that the only reason we were being asked to pay this tax is that other people had evaded it. At that point, we might well say, well, they should pay it. We wouldn't be talking about the sanctity of anything. We would be talking about the efficaciousness of the system. If we ask the right question, we fall back on the highfalutin language of nature and sanctity. When we ask the wrong question, or we stop asking questions when we should keep going. If we ask the right question, we will see that these things are connected and we will see that they are rarely matters of deep principle beyond the principle of utility. Is it leaving people better off? And they are more matters of practicality and how we arrange things. And if we arrange things better, people will be less unhappy. And when they are less unhappy, they will talk less crap. Benthamite utilitarianism does also stand at the basis by a circuitous route of modern economics, of that kind of system. And there are many things to be said against modern economics trying to connect the dots. And economics can go wrong when people, economists, get trapped or get too enamoured of their systems and their models and their schemes, and they forget that human beings aren't necessarily as they picture them, maybe not quite as rational, maybe not quite as systematic, maybe simply not quite as they've modelled them. We know that that happens. But there is also the Benthamite argument for economics, which is it does at least often save us from the nonsense. I sometimes think of Jeremy Bentham when I read Paul Krugman in the New York Times, an economist and also a journalist who pretty much every few weeks, for it feels like the last 20 years, has been writing the same column, which basically says we have to stop believing this nonsense. That economics, if it's worth anything, should at least spare us from being given nonsense. And he's not wrong. But there are things to be said against Benthamite utilitarianism. Let me just offer a couple and then offer a couple more reflections on where it might go from here. So one is the case that was made in part by Bentham's initial follower and then both follower and critic, the great mid to late Victorian philosopher and to an extent utilitarian John Stuart Mill. So Mill felt that there was a great danger in the positive case for utilitarianism, the positive case being that we should seek out happiness, that we should seek out utility, that we should ask ourselves often, is this adding to the sum of human happiness? Because if you keep asking that question, Mill thought, you will miss what makes you happy. If you go around and through life asking yourself always, is this good for utility? you'll miss the chance to lead a really fulfilling life. So for instance, love, human love, is not particularly amenable to utilitarian questions. If you're wondering whether or not to join yourself with another human being, it's probably not best to frame that as a utility question. Will this add to the sum of human happiness? You might be better off, and therefore you might add to the sum of human happiness by following your heart. So there is a case to be said that to add to human happiness, you mustn't pursue it, that the root at very least has to be inadvertent. You have to go round the edges. That's one possibility. There's another kind of criticism, which is an extension of that, which says, well, yes, most people shouldn't do it, shouldn't be utilitarians in their lives because it gets in the way of love or art, of poetry or beauty. Don't look at a painting and ask yourself, is this adding to the sum of human happiness? Look at a painting and ask yourself, does it move me with its beauty? But still there's a thought that in the organisation of society, there should be some people keeping an eye on the sum total of human happiness. 
And this then sometimes is turned into something that's called government house utilitarianism, the idea that most people shouldn't and aren't utilitarians, shouldn't be and aren't utilitarians, but that the people who run society should be. And therefore, there's a kind of gap. There's almost a another mask, which is that the people who rule us make decisions for our benefit, but not in terms they want to communicate to us in case we get confused and start pursuing utility for ourselves. It also extends then into colonial projects of betterment of societies that have been taken over by more enlightened societies somewhere, not just in government house, but in colonial government house, other people making the adjustments for the betterment of people who are not thought to be fit to make those judgments for themselves. And from there, you get to the criticism of Bentham, that he is not just the architect of the panopticon, he's the panopticon philosopher. He's the person who ultimately believed that societies themselves should have their overseer who is watching us, keeping an eye on us, making sure that we are conducing to the greatest happiness of the greatest number, but not telling us about it. We are being observed, but we're not aware of when we're being observed because we're being tweaked and adjusted and nudged in the direction of human betterment at the cost of our freedom and indeed of our self-knowledge. And from there, you get the argument about digital surveillance societies. It is no coincidence that Edward Snowden, the WikiLeaks whistleblower, his nickname for the NSA was the Panopticon for America's security apparatus, was the prison in which we are watched without knowing we're being watched. And then there's the surveillance society of surveillance capitalism, as it's called, the privatized version of it, where we are constantly both being watched, but also nudged by these machines in our pockets that bleep and burp and fart at us with little triggers that are designed to give us dopamine hits so that we can endlessly compare and contrast ourselves to others and wonder if we're missing out and buy new things and be stimulated in such a way that we are endlessly being treated like we're part of the giant pushpin of human life. And you do end up with something that sounds like It's a grotesque parody of Bentham's utilitarianism. So what is there to say back against those criticisms? I'll say three things. I'll say them briefly, though there is much more to say about all of them. First, it is a question of context, I think, and the balance of risk. So on that argument that if we pursue utility through utilitarianism, we will miss out on the important things in life. We are too busy, potentially, worrying about what's useful, and we miss what's beautiful. That's a kind of luxury, I think. And I think in many societies, maybe even including ours, we should be very aware of that, that there are dangers in economic calculus, that we miss out on things that aren't so easily quantified. Excessive quantification can lead us to forget that there are qualitative differences between human experiences. Maybe. But that's not the most important thing in the kind of society that Bentham was living in, where men were being executed for consensual sexual acts. In that society, the balance of risk is the other way. It's far, far more dangerous not to do utilitarianism than to do it, to leave things untouched, to let the nonsense and the masks obscure the truth. The truth being that many, many human beings are suffering terribly and unnecessarily for the sake of doctrines and arguments that are just garbage. In that kind of society... And I think we all have to judge whether we do or don't still live in that kind of society. But 18th century Britain, in that kind of society, the balance is all in favour of empowering the utilitarians to do their stuff 
pour the acid over everything. It will just burn through the nonsense. It will just burn through the worthless masks and then see what's left. The second thing to say is about the Panopticon itself. So Bentham did try and persuade the British Parliament to fund Panopticon schemes to build better prisons. Prisons were pretty grim back then too. One should remember the Panopticon should be compared not with a nice Scandinavian 21st century prison, but with the hell of Newgate. But Parliament, having seemingly said to Bentham that they would build one of his prisons, let him down. He was endlessly frustrated by their inability to do what they said they would do. He was let down by what he saw as the deviousness of politicians. And his response to that was not to go and find some private benefactor to build his prison, but to go the other way and say, actually, the problem here isn't just the penal system. It's politics itself. It's Parliament. Parliament itself is a kind of masked institution. You never know what you're dealing with here. There's too much nonsense and mumbo-jumbo. We need something much, much more open. And Bentham became a radical Democrat. Not exclusively, maybe not even primarily because of his disappointments about the Panopticon, but it was a trigger for him to say, why stop with reforming prisons? Let's reform Parliament if Parliament won't reform prisons. And so he became an advocate of what we would now call modern democracy, because the Britain that he lived in was not a democratic state at all. Its elections were grotesque, farcical versions of democratic politics, rotten boroughs, corrupt, a tiny franchise, almost everyone excluded. So Bentham argued for three things, along with other radical Democrats, secret ballots, so that people could express preferences in private and not be bullied, a widely extended franchise so that working men could vote, not yet working women, but ultimately everyone, and also annual parliaments. Let them be re-elected every year so that they can't build up the mumbo-jumbo and the nonsense. They don't have enough time to create the masks. Cut through year after year, make them justify themselves. And we ended up with two of those three. We have secret ballots, we have a very wide extended franchise. We don't have annual parliaments. The closest to that is the American House of Representatives every two years. But that's got corrupted and masked in a very different way. Through gerrymandering, separate issue. Bentham became a Democrat because of his experiences with the Panopticon. He did not become someone who believed in a secret surveillance society. He thought the great thing about democracy was that it allowed people to express their own preferences and force the politicians to listen to them, and that that would add to the greatest happiness of the greatest number. Is he wrong? Finally, what would Bentham say about our digitised surveillance bleep bleep world, where we're nudged and triggered for cheap pleasures? He would be horrified by it. I'm sure he would. There's nothing in Bentham that suggests that he wanted us to live like this. I mean, he would also be astonished by it because it's so remote from 18th century life. But he would recognise some of what's going on here, that we are being manipulated. And I think I know what he would say. Is it making us happy? Is living with these little machines in our pockets making us happy? Is the constant search for gratification online adding to the sum of human pleasure? There are pleasures involved. There are dopamine hits, no question. This is a, an economy of little pleasures and also little pains too. But is this actually making us better off? 
And if we're going to pose that question, we should pose the question, if not, why are we doing it like this? We should ask the why question. It's not natural. It's definitely not natural. So why? How did we end up so quickly in a world where this technology, which had so much potential, has been captured by vast, monolithic, heartless corporate interests, has helped potentially to corrupt our politics, and it's making us, particularly those of us who spend too much time on it, pretty damn miserable. How? And Bentham would say, we only really have one tool to help us answer that question, utilitarianism, because it does have the great merit that it cuts through the crap. It does have the great merit that it doesn't allow people to get away with talking nonsense. If you ask the utilitarian question, it won't be good enough for people to say, well, this is just the way that technology is. Technology is just heading in a certain direction and we have no choice but to go along for the ride. If you want to know, is it contributing to the sum of human happiness? It won't be enough for people to say, well, this is how free markets work. This is how we organize our societies if we want to be free. And freedom is something sacred. We must be very, very careful about interfering with people's freedom and their freedom of choice. We'll allow them to consent to the ways in which they're being manipulated. But we must be very, very careful not to overregulate. And Bentham would say, well, let's apply the acid test of utility. Really? There are lots of things that we can do, and we should do the thing that makes people better off. Bentham would be the person who says, far from thinking that this is an extension of or a parody of utilitarianism, this is the thing that utilitarianism is designed to help us with because it gets us to focus back on the question of human well-being and happiness and pleasure, not narrowly conceived, not conceived as grotesquely narrowly as many giant internet companies seem to conceive it, but conceived broadly in the introduction to the principles of morals and legislation, Bentham has a remarkably broad template for what might count as pleasure. People can get pleasure from all sorts of things. They can even get pleasure from pain. They can certainly get pleasure from self-sacrifice. They can get pleasure from simply caring about other human beings. There are a million ways we can get pleasure. Bentham is not a reductive political philosopher. This potentially at least, is a reductive technology. So it shouldn't be blamed on Bentham. Bentham is not the villain of the 21st century story. Bentham, maybe Asperger's syndrome, Jeremy Bentham, is a hero for our times. For a last chance to sign up to History of Ideas Plus, where you'll receive copies of all the books David's discussing in this series, plus much more, please visit lrb.me forward slash ideas plus, spelled P-L-U-S. This offer is only available for one more week. Next time on History of Ideas, David talks about Frederick Douglass, the former slave who came to define American freedom, a remarkable life that produced some remarkable ideas. <laughs>